Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In today's episode, we start a two-week series with James Jordan on the topic of history. Do be sure to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, we'd love for you to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us over there. And there's still time to register and join us for our Theopolitan Ministry Conference on the topic of hope, which will be taking place here in a couple of weeks. All of that information is down there in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan answering the question, what is history? In talking about prophecy and society, One of the things that we have to bear in mind is that prophecy in the Bible is not exactly what we think of it as. It's not just predictions of future events. It is more uh, God's way of bringing uh, judgment against society and against persons because of what they have done at a certain point, and it fits into a structure of history. And what I need to do, what I want to do and want us to do in the next hour is to try to think about what history is. And that is not necessarily an easy thing to do. We find it somewhat difficult to think about history, to understand history. And there are specific reasons why that's so. We would rather not think historically. Now, right off the bat, you're probably thinking, what's he talking about? And The answer to that question is going to come as we get along. The first thing that makes it hard to think about history and our reluctance to do so is that God is the author of history. We don't like God. And God is a God who is always making things new, which means that the things that we're used to are going to change. At any point in time, you can know that the future will be different from what it is now and that the trends that are in motion right now are not going to lead into the future. The trends that we see in our society right now are not going to eventuate in the way things are going to be a hundred years from now because God will do something new and different that will change what we see going on. That's not to say that the trends we see going on are irrelevant to what is going to come in the future, but that something else will happen because God is always making things new. God is always surprising things. And we will examine some of those kinds of things as we go along. But this is true. And if you know something about the history of Western civilization, you know it's true. No one would have anticipated the age of discovery. The trends that were going on before the age of discovery didn't lead to the age of discovery. Somebody decided to go out and start exploring. The age of invention is not something that one would have anticipated from previous trends. And yet all of a sudden, about a hundred years ago, people began to invent things. And all kinds of inventions were invented. And now people think of an inventor as a type of human being. Two hundred years ago, there was no such thing as an inventor. That's not to say that things hadn't been invented, but people had not become self-conscious of the whole idea of invention. And so forth. So I think probably the best illustration of that for us is that I never read anything about the future of our civilization that thought the Soviet Union would collapse when it did or to the extent that it did. 
I don't think anybody thought that the people would tear down statues of Lenin. I think they thought that they would get rid of things, but they would keep Lenin maybe a little bit as some type of hero. But as far as it went, the extent and depth of the reaction, I think, surprised just about everybody. Maybe not everybody. And that's just a minor example. So since God is the author of history and is making things new all the time, it's difficult for us to think about it because we're not in control of it. And that leads to the second reason why it's difficult for us to think about and understand history, and that's that we want to play God. We want to be outside of history. We want to be free from the dirt and grime of historical flux and change. We want timeless, abstract reason. And so what we find is that in every society, human knowledge, reflection, religion, and philosophy always move toward timeless, ahistorical, abstract categories of thought and away from the constant change in history over which we don't have any mental control. I can't control in my mind how things are in history. So it's nicer to come up with abstract thought. And if you consider Greek philosophy, it's timeless. Confucianism, timeless. Buddhism, timeless. Hinduism, timeless. Tribalism. Tribalism is timeless because the forces in nature don't change and because the ancestors have set things up and you're never supposed to deviate from what the ancestors tell you to do. And that is the way we think. We want to be like God and have, as Dr. Van Til says, our minds legislative for reality. And when we come to grips with the reality of history and historical change, we're suddenly confronted with the fact that our minds don't legislate for reality. God brings new and surprising and different things into history, and we don't like that. We want to be like God and not be subject to historical change. Well, I'm going to expand on these two aspects of things as we go. But that's to start with why we find it hard to think about history. And this is a very real problem in the church as well. What is the part of the Bible that has received the most attention over the last 2,000 years? The Pauline epistles, which are the one part of the Bible that is the most timeless and systematic. I mean, how many commentaries are there on Romans? As opposed to, say, Samuel. Or Acts. The book of Acts. How many commentaries are there on Acts? Next to none. And yet, how many are there on Romans? And even the commentaries on Romans assume that Paul, that what they'll say is, Paul had never been to Rome, so he just wrote them a systematic theology. And, of course, if you stay abreast, then you know that that won't hold water. Romans is an occasional epistle. It deals with the Jew-Gentile problem consistently throughout. It exists in time. It's not a timeless systematics. And so we, in our own tradition and in the whole history of the church, we have this desire when we do intellectual thought to move away from having to deal with time and history. Well... How do we think about history? Let's look at this second category of things here. The relationship of biblical history to world history. What is the relationship of biblical history to world history? The first way you can relate Bible history to world history is the liberal way of doing it. The liberals say Bible history is holy history. It is Heilsgeschichte. Heilsgeschichte means sacred story. 
The Germans have the word history, which means actual history that is chronological. And then they have Geschichte, which is a storybook history. And the holy storybook history is what they call the Bible. The Bible it really happens in another world. It's a series of glamorized versions of things that really didn't happen the way they said. Once upon a time, there was a gang of about 350 slaves in Egypt who ran away. And they came to the Promised Land. There were a bunch of different tribes and different people living there, and they formed an alliance with all these other tribes. And these other tribes had stories. One of them had a story about an ancestor named Isaac who got blind and who had trouble with his two sons. And another tribe had a story about an ancestor named Abram who couldn't have kids. And after a while, these tribes got together and they formed an amphictyony, which means they got together. And after a while, the priest decided, let's integrate all these stories together. And so they invented a story that Abraham was the father of Isaac and that Isaac was the father of Jacob and he was the father of all these tribes. And they went down to Egypt and they stayed there and they all came out two million strong. Now, that's just off the top of my head. I don't know if any liberal ever puts it that way or not because every one of them is different. Who cares? You know, they're all apostates. But that's their view. Now, what, how do we take the Bible history then? Well, it's inspirational. It deals with deep, religious, timeless truths. Yeah, the Bible's designed to give us timeless truths. But as a matter of fact, in history, the plagues never took place. Moses turned water to blood. Now, that was designed to say, look, you killed all our firstborn sons. You killed all the, the sons of Israel in this river 80 years ago for a while. And now all the blood is coming back. And now you're going to have to let us go free. That's what it means. Well, that's true. That's what it means. But now that we know what it means, we don't have to believe that Moses turned the river to blood anymore. Because... We don't need that anymore. We've got the timeless meaning, which is, you know, if you do bad, it comes back on you later on, and we don't need the history. That is the liberal view, and you find evangelicals speaking that way from time to time as well. And the way they've got the history and chronology of the ancient world put together, we find that the plagues on Egypt and the Exodus make no ripple in history. So they're confirmed in this. They say that this took place in the reign of Thutmose III. Well, what does the Bible say took place? It says all the cattle were destroyed. All the crops were destroyed. All the firstborn sons from the age of one month to five years, that's who we're talking about when we talk about the firstborn sons, they were all killed. The entire Egyptian army was drowned, including the Pharaoh, the Bible says. So forget the movie. You know, Yul Brenner was not standing on the seashore after it was over. No, his bones are down there in the Red Sea, too. Plus... Two million of their skilled artisans and laborers left, along with who knows how many mixed multitude. And this made no ripple in history. No, I thought most the third, he just continues to reign, and his son is Amenhotep the fourth, and Egypt is just as strong. That's impossible. Obviously, one or two things is true. The Bible's giving us a tremendously exaggerated report, or thought most the third is not the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But you see, the liberal reconciliation is Bible history doesn't have anything to do with world history. Now, that's wrong. The second view is the common evangelical view, which is the Bible history happened, 
and world history happened. And that's kind of what we all grow up with. We learn world history in school and we learn Bible history in Sunday school. And there's Bible history and there's world history. And there's not much interaction. Now you stop and think about how you view the ancient world. Do you think about how the Greeks and the Hebrews interacted with each other? Or how the Chinese or the Persians may have interacted with the Jews over the centuries? No, we don't think that way. We think of Bible history as happening kind of over here on the side, and occasionally there'll be, you know, somebody will marry a Pharaoh or an Assyrian will come in, but it's all isolated from everything else in the world. And the history of the people who built Stonehenge have no relationship to the Jews. The people who set up the city of Carthage had never heard of the Hebrews. Now, when you stop and look at that, it becomes preposterous. It's impossible for that to be true. But most of us don't think that way. We tend to think Bible history happened and world history happened, and there wasn't much interaction between the two of them. Now, I want to make you conscious of that way of thinking so that you discard it. Because the true biblical position is this, that Bible history is the center and the core and the driving force of all other history. The Bible history is the center of all other history. It's the core and the driving force of all other nations and all other histories. God was working with the human race by working with a part of it. God separates a part of the human race and works with that part, and the ripples went out to all the rest. God says to Abraham, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Was that known around the ancient world? Sure it was. Sure, it was known around the ancient world. People knew who Abraham was. They knew who the Jews were. They weren't stupid back then. People in the ancient world did not have IQs in the 50s. And then, you know, around the year 1000, human beings had evolved to have IQs in the 80s. And in the Middle Ages, people's IQs got up to be around 100, and now we're where we are now. That's not true. People in the ancient world weren't stupid. They weren't any stupider than we are. They're smarter than these liberals. What was God doing? God was working, steering things at the center. He says, this is the center, and I will steer things at the center, and it affects everything else in the periphery. The other nations around about knew about the Abrahamic covenant. They knew about the Mosaic covenants. If we revise the chronology of the ancient world, it becomes likely that Hammurabi's code of laws comes after Moses, not before. The Jews were known around the ancient world. And the chronology, the Bible gives us a strict chronology from creation to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And that chronology in the Bible is fixed to the center of the line. We have a chronology of the godly patriarchs down to the flood and then down to Abraham. Then the chronology goes to the Exodus. It goes to the building of the temple. It goes through the kings. The chronology in the Bible is at the center of Bible history. Now that is the solid core of history is Bible history. And it's the history of God's acts. When we stop to think about history, God's acts, what do we call in the Bible the significant acts of God when He interferes in Jewish history? What He does is He makes covenants. And what you find is the covenants are always dated. Now, covenants are always dated. Your marriage covenant is dated. 
And the women in this room know what the date is. The husbands don't know. They might know. But the wives know the date that is on a written document. Now, this written document has a bunch of written documents in it that are all dated. The Mosaic Covenant is dated. It's dated 430 years after Abraham entered the Promised Land. The Abrahamic Covenant is carefully dated. Circumcision takes place when Ishmael is 13 years old and Abraham is 99. And you can count the years back to the flood. They're dated. The temple is built in the fourth year of Solomon, begins to be built. It's dated. And God makes covenants and He dates them. Now that's offensive to the modern mind. The modern mind is offended at the idea that God talks. Let alone that God writes. How much of the Bible is dictated by God? When I was in seminary, we were told, well, we believe in inspiration, and that's not really divine dictation. We don't believe that God dictated the Bible. We believe the inspired men, and men wrote the Bible, and what they produced was absolutely inerrant in the Word of God. Well, that's true for a lot of the Bible, but some parts of the Bible are dictated by God, where God speaks, and the guys just write it down. The whole second half of Exodus, the whole book of Leviticus, about the first half of Numbers... And an awful lot of the prophets, wherever it says, Thus saith the Lord, the Lord appeared to me and said, Tell my people this. What do you think those prophets did? They grabbed a pen. It's dictated by God. That's offensive. But it's even more offensive to the modern mind that God dates what He does. He actually puts dates on it. History is not supposed to be where God works, you see. But we can't hold that view. We're here to say, That's wrong. Bible history is not history that takes place somewhere else. It's not just a bunch of ideas. It's not a bunch of abstract truths communicated through stories. Bible history is the core of world history directed by God. Well, what is history concerned with then? History is the history of humanity under God's control. History concerns the human race. And if this Bible history is the core history of the world, and we're going to have to force ourselves to learn to think in historical terms and not in abstract terms, what is a human being? Well, here's some examples of what a human being is. Human beings are, first of all, copies of God. We are the images of God by definition. People in hell are the images of God. Say, what is a man or a woman? They are the image of God. Good, bad, or indifferent, they're the image of God. That's a tautology. The image of God is human beings. Human beings are the image of God. We are also made in the likeness of God, and that likeness can increase or decrease. Adam and Eve were made in the likeness of God, but Satan came and said, you can be like God, and after it was over, God said, the man and the woman had become like one of us. Well, obviously, there is a growth in likeness. So since we are a copy of God, what is God like? Well, I have it here in your notes. God is Father and Son and Spirit. And humanity is the daughter of God. It's the way the Bible sets it out. It calls us daughter Zion, daughter Jerusalem. Now, many Bibles will say daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, because the genitive case in Hebrew often reads that way, but many times it's simply appositional, and that's the way it is here. Zion is the daughter. Jerusalem is the daughter. Second of all, God is father, older brother, and counselor. And in terms of that, what are we? Well, we're sister. Jesus is our older brother. 
A third way to say this, the Bible says it, is that God is Father, Husband, and Matchmaker. That's what the Spirit does. He leads the bride to the groom. In that case, we're the bride. We're daughter, sister, and bride. Jesus says, my sister, my bride. God says, daughter Zion, daughter Jerusalem. That's what we are. That's how it relates. God is author, his Father. He is the Word. And as soon as the Word is said out loud, it is said with musical quality. My voice is going up and down. Loud and soft. Those are all musical qualities. As soon as you add breath to words, you get a musical quality. The Spirit is the breath. Author, Word, and music... And human beings are singers. And singing is very important in the Bible. It is all over the Bible. In terms of biblical education, the second thing you learn is music. The first thing you learn is word Bible content, and the second thing you learn is to sing the Bible. Now, our modern educational Christian schools don't have that priority, and it would be hard to work it into place. But I would submit that in terms of what the Bible says is core, the core thing is to learn Scripture, and the second thing after that is to sing Scripture, particularly the Psalms. See? I'm right. That's right. Finally, another way to say this is that God is planner, God is doer and God is coordinator. The Spirit always brings things together and coordinates things. And human beings, as they move in time and space, are dancers. Now, we don't think of ourselves as dancers, but every time you move, you move in a certain kind of a way. Like when I do this. Isn't that graceful? No. But it is a crude dance-like motion. See, dancing relates to music the way speaking relates to singing. If I just got up here and spoke like this, there would be almost no musical quality in my voice except that I am saying every word at the same pace. So it's got rhythm, but I'm making my voice go up and down and loud and soft and fast and slow. See? But if I start to sing it, then I add to that, you see? Well, we are always moving around and making gestures, and that is dancing at one level. And all that has to happen is start to tango or something, then you do more. You can't help but do that. That's what it is to be the daughter of God. Daughter, sisters, and brides, women sing and dance in the Bible. After the Red Sea, it says Miriam led the women out singing and dancing. Men just kind of stood there. The second thing we are, in addition to being images of God, is that we are living pieces of dirt. That's what you are. You are a clod of dirt. The Bible says so. We are the Holy Land. People say, where's the Holy Land? This is it. You're looking at it. Man was made of dust. Not made of clay. Dust doesn't have any water in it. We were made of dust. Human beings are land to come to life. Human beings are the cosmos coming to life and to self-expression. I know that sounds New Agey, but all the New Agers are doing is perverting something that's true in a biblical context. They want to put it in an atheistic context in which there is no creation. But in a biblical context, this is true. God didn't have to make us out of dust. He did. Human beings are the core and center of creation. All of the physical world, all of the stuff of the world, all of the substance of the world 
is tied into human beings. And we see this in the way we live. God makes the world. He makes dirt. He makes stuff. He puts in the world machines designed to turn dirt into food. We call them plants. Plants are machines that turn dirt into food. Something that's kind of half alive. The Bible never says plants are alive. Our categories of saying plants and animals are alive, it's not quite the way the Bible does it. In the Bible, plants are really more like machines that make food. Animals eat the food, and human beings eat animals and plants. So we eat the world. What we're eating is the world. Humanity is related to the universe and to God. And we are constantly taking the world into ourselves. Because when you eat a pear, what you were eating originally was dirt. And the action of sunlight and the Holy Spirit has caused that dirt to transform into a pear. And now you can eat it. Or a chicken can eat it, and then you can eat the chicken. But you are eating world. And so human beings are the core of the world. We relate the universe to God. How does God relate to the universe? Through us. We have a chalkboard here. I could diagram it, but just use your imagination. Here's God, here's the world, and we're in between. We take the world up into ourselves, and when God works with us, He's working with the world. We're the center of the world. Human beings are. Now, if what we're considering is history, then we're considering how God is steering the cosmos and bringing it to its perfection by dealing with the core and center of the cosmos, which is human beings, which is you. And God is transforming us. We are the agents of transformation in the world. God transforms us. We transform the world. We eat it. Eat the world. And thus we relate it to ourselves and to God. It's what it means to be a priest. One aspect of priesthood is the priests get to eat the food. There are special foods the priest gets to eat. He gets to take the world into himself before God. Finally, history as it concerns humanity, we can summarize. History is the growth of God's daughter into a bride for his son. That's us. We're the daughter and God is growing us up from being a little girl into being a bride for his son. Now, that is what history is all about, as well as biography. Your biography and the history of the human race are those things. So what is happening with the world then? The world is being transformed into a daughter. That is to say, when you eat the world, you are transforming world into daughter. Think these ways, this transformational way. And this is the way in which God is working with the world. Don't think that God's superintendence of the world is one thing and in His dealing with the human race is another, because that's not true. He's dealing with the world through us. Now, we've reflected then on three things so far. We've reflected on, first of all, that we find it a little bit difficult to understand history because we want to be timeless, and we're going to get more into that later on. Second of all, we've considered that biblical history is the core of world history. And third, we've considered that history concerns humanity, and human beings are copies of God, and they are also intimately related to the created world. And as human beings grow and evolve, then what happens to the world? 
it grows and evolves. Now, not in the naturalistic evolution sense, but in the sense that the world is transformed from glory to glory as we are. Now, let's go back to the question of how God steers and directs history. How does God direct history? How has he done it? Well, what God does in the Bible is he closes down to a small group and he steers that history for about 1,500 years and then he starts engrafting humanity into that history. If you read the early chapters of Genesis, you start with Noah, and out of Noah and his sons, God selects Shem. And then we have the sons of Shem, and God selects out of that the line of Arpax had, as I recall. We come on down to Eber. Eber has two sons, Peleg and Joktan. Joktan has 13 sons. They go apostate. They go and build the Tower of Babel. But Peleg continues on down, and God narrows it down to Abraham. Abraham has two sons. To start with, I guess he has eight altogether. God narrows it down to Isaac. Isaac has two sons. He narrows it down to Jacob. And then he changes Jacob's name to Israel. And Israel then becomes the point. Everything starts to flow out from that. And God works with Israel until we get down to Romans chapter 11. And he starts grafting other branches into Israel. Which means that if you are a Christian... You've been grafted into that history. Did your ancestors go through the Red Sea? Yes. How about the Israelis over there in Palestine? Did their ancestors go through the Red Sea? No, they didn't, because they have been broken out of that history. Now, they're biological ancestors. That's not relevant. Our ancestors went through the Red Sea. You are a descendant of Abraham, because you have been grafted into that history. In other words, God uses that history to create something and then graft us into it. And the climax of it, of course, is the creation of Jesus Christ and we are grafted into Him. But don't isolate that from the whole history. When we are grafted into Christ, we're not grafted into Him in isolation from the fact that He is the true Israel. That becomes our history. And it becomes our consciousness. You know, when you grow up in a family, you learn certain things from your home. And it's different from what someone else learns. We've been grafted into that family history for 2,000 years. And we've kind of messed it up. But the Jews were always messing it up too. So then, what is that history, that small group that God puts at the center of the world and He steers history by moving with that group and then grafting us into it? How do we think about Bible history? Well, there are four ways to understand Bible history and what God is doing with it. First of all, Bible history is just stuff that happened before A.D. 70 is recorded in the Bible. Oh, that's pretty trivial, but I'm afraid that's the way a lot of people look at it. It is almost irrelevant to their lives. I mean Christians. I've known ruling elders in Presbyterian churches that I'm sure could not have told me the books of the Old Testament, let alone what was in it. I had a ruling elder one day ask me if Joshua came before Isaiah or Isaiah came before Joshua. Now, it may not be his fault that he was never taught anything, but for heaven's sake. Obviously, to that gentleman and to many other Christians, the Bible is just a bunch of stuff that happened before Jesus came. And the whole Bible is just a bunch of stuff that happened before A.D. 70. 
Well, that's not good enough, obviously. second way of looking at Bible history is as illustrations of moral principles. And I'm afraid that is where most Christians leave it. The problem with looking at Bible history as just illustrations of moral principles is it doesn't ever need to have happened, if that's true. Once upon a time, once upon a time, a man gave a great wedding feast and he invited people to come and some came and some didn't come and he sent people out on the highways and byways to compel others to come in and after the feast got started he went through and he saw somebody there without a white garment on and he had him kicked out. Well, did that ever happen? No, it's just a story designed to make a point. Now, if what you do with the story of David and Bathsheba is you say... It was the time when kings went forth to war and David stayed back behind. And that shows us that kings should lead their armies into battle. In fact, we find that the Ark of the Covenant was in the field, but David was back in the palace, which shows David wasn't where God was. And David got up after lazing around all day long, and it was in the cool of the evening. And obviously he was just lazy and bored, and he went out on the palace, and his house was higher than anybody else's. He saw this lady out there taking a bath, and so he sent for her and... He committed adultery with her, and then he had her husband murdered, and bad things happened to David because of that, and that shows that you ought not to commit adultery. And especially kings ought not to. Now, I'm making this a little bit humorous, but the fact is, that never needs to have happened at all. It's just a story then. It's no different from Aesop's fables or the parables in the Bible, if that's all it is. Now, I'm not saying that you can't use David as an illustration of what happens when you commit adultery. Because you can. David's sons grow up and they commit adultery. Amnon ravishes Tamar. All he's doing is imitating his father. And then all kinds of terrible things happen as a result. I mean, there's a lot that you can say about it in terms of deriving moral lessons from it and illustrating moral principles. But history has to be more than that. Otherwise, it could just be a novel. And, of course, liberals take it that way. To the liberal, he doesn't know if it ever really happened or not, but it's a great story, and so we can make a movie out of it. Well, the third thing we can do with Bible history, and we should do, is take it typologically. David is a type of Christ, and he's a type of Adam. His sins are like Adam's sins. His good deeds are like Jesus' good deeds. He shows us what Adam is like. He relates previously through history typologically. David is a new Jephthah. He's out in the boonies, and men who have been dispossessed by evil king Saul flock around him. And so he's another Jephthah. And he's also a type of Solomon who comes after him. So he's a type backwards to who? Moses. And he's a type forward to Elisha. And he's a type backwards to Adam, and he's a type forward to Jesus. And Ezekiel is a type of Christ. He's the Son of Man. And Ezekiel is the one who prophesies to the Jews that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And Ezekiel is the one that God baptizes at the age of 30 by heaven opening up and God coming down upon him. And Ezekiel is called the Son of Man, and so forth and so on. Well, that's all true. But once again, that's not enough. We do need a typological understanding of history because everything in history does make sense, especially in Bible history. We're always pointing back to Adam and forward to Christ. But more than that... Bible history are the acts by which God creates and matures a human race over a course of time. 
God is building into the consciousness of these people changes that make them different from what they were before. Who you are right now is the sum of all the things God has done to you so far in your life that make you different from what you were before. Most of us are old enough to where we can look back and realize that 10, 15, 20 years ago we were different. We may have liked different foods. We may have felt different about things. We were probably more enthusiastic about life. Things have happened that change us. Now, God changes not only us individually, but He changes societies. America today is not America 100 years ago or 200 years ago. The United States of America today is in the process of making a radical reversal of the cultural trends that have been in our country for over 200 years. Since the time of the French and Indian War, the United States of America has been moving towards centralized government. And you can just make a straight line. We go from there to the Revolution, and Articles of Confederation don't work, so we get a Constitution that is more centralized and federalistic. You come around to the Civil War, more centralized. The trust busting, more centralized. World wars enable the government to become more centralized, more centralized. And now there's a big swing in the opposite direction happening as we speak. An anti-big government, anti-centralist trend. Far more powerful. I think we're seeing the pendulum swing back. Well, now, these things happen over time. God brings events that change human beings over time. My mother is constantly reminding me, I think this is true of just about everybody who went through the Great Depression, that she went through the Great Depression. And that's not necessarily wrong, but I think going through the Great Depression made a big impact on people who went through the Great Depression. Now, that made them different from what they were before. I didn't. I grew up in the 50s, and so it was prosperity. You know, I basically was okay and wasn't hungry and afraid. That makes me a different person. Now, God did that with Israel for 1,500 years, working with them and making them different people. And you can look at their history and you can see that the things they got into and the sins they committed were different from time to time. For instance... Where in the Gospels does Jesus get onto them about Baal and Asherah? Were the Jews in Jesus' day fooling around with Baals on high places? No. Were they sinners? Yeah. Did Jesus condemn them? Yeah. But you see, they had become a different people with a different mindset, and their sin tendency was no longer to set up Baals on high places, but it was to invent a new law that they put next to God's law. Their traditions. Now, that's a different sin. And the way they got from being high-placed Baal worshippers to being people who were creating the oral law is history. God worked with them and made them different. Now, what God is doing over the course of thousands and thousands of years is He is growing humanity into something different. We don't think the way people thought in the Middle Ages. And people 500 years from now are not going to think the way we think. And we can't know how they're going to think because God is going to do some new things between now and then. And we don't know what they are. Now we can say some things about it, but we can't really put our feet in it. It's kind of the failure of all science fiction. you know. Even if it's kiddie science fiction like Star Trek, 
what you have is Americans in space. There are no rituals on Star Trek. If it's sophisticated science fiction like Dune, at least you've got a different culture that has rituals and is very ornate and Baroque, and so it doesn't look like Americans in space. And so the movie flops because people can't identify with it. But even so, it's really Italians and medieval civilization in space. Because nobody can really guess what it's going to be like. Some have done a decent job of saying if something really new and different happened, what would its impact be? But we can't really know. When God does something new, you don't know what it's going to be like. People in the Middle Ages didn't think that our civilization would look the way it does. They thought it would just be a bigger version of their civilization. And we think that 300 years from now, people will be like us, only bigger and better, with spaceships instead of cars. They won't be like us. God is growing history. And He does it over millennia of time. And that is what Bible history is. It's not just stories. That's why we have to say it really happened. It really happened in clock time. It really happened in real history time. And it really happened at the center and the core of history because what God was doing was He was changing the human race by dealing with this central core group. And the ripples went out to all the other nations round about. And then when that history was finished, He started grafting all the other nations into it. It's kind of like leaven. You make sourdough, you take a little bit of it off and you save it and you bake the lump. Then what do you do with this little bit of sourdough that's left? You add it to a bunch more flour and let it leaven that bunch. Well, that's what Israel is. That's what Bible history is. It's the little piece of sourdough that now gets added into everything else. And it's added in. It's our history. How does God direct your life as an individual? He brings hard things into your life and good things into your life that change you. And He brings things that look good and that turn out to have bad consequences. And He brings things that feel bad that turn out to have good consequences. God is always messing with your life. You think things are going to go on okay and then something happens. Something bad, something good, but something. And that's how God is dealing with the human race as a whole. God is three in one. He is a person. He is also three persons, not in quite the same sense. Don't say God is one in nature and three in person. If you say, oh God, help me, what are you talking to? A nature? The Trinity is a mystery. God is a person. And God is three persons. And that's where we have to leave it. And for the same reason, God is growing us as individuals. And God is also growing the human race. And He is saving the human race. Now, we know that when all is said and done, there are some parts of the human race that are going to be cut off and lost. But the core of humanity is saved. God is here to save humanity. We're not the ones who are going to be raptured out. It's the wicked who are going to be raptured out. It's our world. We get this world. And we get the new heavens and the new earth. God is saving this world. He's saving us. The wicked will be pulled out at the end. Well, when you and I are transfigured by God, all the dirt that's linked to us is transfigured as well. Everything that you've ever eaten is going to be transfigured with you. Now, eating in the Bible means to get into covenant relationship with. So, do you have a little dog when you were a little kid? And is the dog dead now? Is that dog going to be in heaven? Yes. Because everything that is linked with you 
finds a place except for the wicked who are pruned out. But the world is ours. So everything that any Christian has ever linked into is going to be saved with him. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's because we are positioned where we are. We're not isolated from the world. It's not that human beings are here and then we're, we're in the world. It's the problem with environmentalism. The assumption that you can have an ecosystem without people in it. You can't have an ecosystem without people in it. There have always been people in every ecosystem. You take the people out, you don't have one. Human beings are intimately tied into the world. See, I believe that as we grow, the world grows. And at the end, when we are transfigured, everything that's linked up with us will be transfigured. I don't know what heaven's going to look like because it's in the future and we can't know what the future is like, except in general terms. But the world will be transformed. So there's a new heaven and a new earth when there's a new humanity. Now, that's what God is doing. God is actually directing history. And the Bible is showing us how God steers and directs history. If we study the Bible as history, we can learn something about how history moves. And then we can begin to say, where is our civilization? Where have we come from and where are we right now? We can answer questions like that in general terms if we understand how God works in history. But if we just read the Bible as a series of illustrations of moral principles or as types, we won't learn this particular thing. And we won't acquire wisdom. The fifth thing in talking about coming to grips with what history is, and I hope you're starting to get a better idea of what history is. If you look at the Bible, you'll find that Abraham is told that in him all nations will be blessed and those who bless him will be blessed and he will be blessed by the nations. That doesn't happen in Abram's lifetime. He goes down to Egypt, Pharaoh attacks his wife. He goes to Philistia, Abimelech attacks his wife. Doesn't happen with Isaac. Isaac goes to Philistia. Bad things happen with his wife. Philistines keep filling up his wells with dirt. Doesn't happen in Jacob's life. Jacob summarizes his life by saying, Few and evil have been the days of my life. Goes out to get a wife and he gets cheated. He gets cheated out of everything. And when he comes back to the promised land, all he has is a bunch of speckled and spotted and striped sheep, which aren't any good. Well, they are good, but they're not the best, of course. And then his two sons murder all the people in the town of Shechem, and he has to move away from that. It doesn't happen until the fourth generation. Then Joseph goes down to Egypt, and the Pharaoh converts, and the Egyptians convert, and they bless him, and they get blessed. And God has said to Abram, In you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, but it doesn't happen in Abram's life, nor in Isaac's, nor in Jacob's. But it does in Joseph's, because all the nations of the world come to Joseph for bread. So the statement, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, is fulfilled in Joseph. Now, it's fulfilled greater in Jesus. But in Genesis, Genesis is a literary unit. It's fulfilled, receives that initial fulfillment there with Joseph. But Abraham has to look down generations. Now, how long is this history going to last? Well, the second commandment says... You will not make a graven image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or on the earth beneath or on the waters under the earth. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children down to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations of those that love me. Now, if God is going to show his loving kindness for thousands of generations, how long is that? 
1,000 generations is 30 or 40,000 years. And if it's plural, that gives us at least 3,000 generations. So we're looking at about 100,000 years minimum. Now, if Jesus comes back tomorrow, Satan says, well, you said you could show your loving kindness for thousands of generations, but you couldn't. So I don't think that's going to happen. I'm inclined to think that Jesus isn't coming back for a long time. Of course, Jesus comes back every Sunday to meet with us. He comes to us in many ways, but I'm talking about ending history now. How long is that going to last? Well, it could last for thousands of generations. The Bible at least speaks that way. And we have to be prepared to think that way. This is a long process. Or look at something else. Jesus, when he left the earth, said, Go therefore and disciple all nations. How many nations have been discipled? Zip. Nada. Now, there have been a few nations that have been kind of begun to be discipled a little bit. And it's made some significant difference. But you wouldn't want to say the United States of America has ever been anywhere near a consistent Christian theocracy. Back in the days when there were more Christians around, there were slaves. And they weren't working on ways to get those slaves free the way they should have. So God brought a war and set them free that way. We just can't look back at the past and find any time when when there was a discipled nation. But we have seen nations begin to be discipled somewhat, and so it is happening. But you consider how many nations there are. Now, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 10, there were 70 nations. And God selected one, the Hebrews, the Pelagite Hebrews, and He discipled them, the Israelites. Now He says all nations will be the disciples. And unfortunately, since Genesis 10, those 70 nations have become a lot more than just 70 nations. A nation is a linguistic cultural group. How many languages are there in the world? The Tower of Babel tells us the separate languages are the separate nations. So how many languages are there? There are a lot. And every tongue is going to praise Christ before it's over with. And every nation is going to be discipled before Jesus comes back because the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seas. At the present rate of the accomplishment of the Great Commission, we've got about 100,000 years to go easy before this is done. Now, if it speeds up, maybe it'll happen faster. We have to learn to think this way. Why? Because to become more like the image and likeness of God, we think in longer and longer lines of time, and in that way we approach God's eternal perspective. Now, you and I will never be God, we will never be timeless, and we will never have an eternal perspective. But the longer time perspective we have, the more become like God at the created level. And we see that longer perspective, we are coming like an eternal God's perspective. And that happens to you anyway. When you're a small child, Christmas never comes. For some people, Christmas never comes. But it seems to take forever. But when you get to be my age, it comes too often. Now, you look at what happens as we mature. When we're small children, you know, a child is easily distracted and his attention span is real short. And he perceives the day as having a whole bunch of sections in it. I don't know if you can think back to when you were a small child, but a child's day is really many days. 
Now, eventually you get to where you feel the day as a whole. And eventually you get to where you feel the week as a whole. And people talk about, you know, Monday and Friday, you know, TGIF and Monday blues and all this. People start to feel the week as a whole. Well, you look in the Bible and God sets up this annual calendar of Israel and those people begin to feel, after a while you begin to feel the year as a whole. And if you have, let's say that you have a Bible camp, a Feast of Tabernacles every year in August, you would begin to feel that after a while. Or if you observe annual festivals like Christmas, you begin to get a rhythm of that. Now all that's happening is your time sense is broadening out. And then you die. I mean, we're not going to make it to a thousand years. It seems like the ideal lifespan of a human being is a thousand years because that's what everybody almost gets to before the flood. Now if you lived a thousand years, I imagine you get to where you could feel the rhythm of a decade or a seven-year period of time, like the Sabbath years in Israel. Then there was the 50-year jubilee time. Well, that's just too much. I mean, we don't live long enough to where we could begin to feel the rhythm of a 50-year period of time. But suppose you lived a 1,000 years. I mean, the whole year would take on a rhythm. I remember a number of years ago being at a Bill Gothard conference and his talking about they find in counseling people that if some crisis happens to you at a certain time of the year, like, say, your spouse dies in April, and you're real upset and depressed. Every year in April, you're going to kind of move through that same depression. And people will come in and say, you know, I'm just so depressed, and the doctor won't know what to do about it. But the thing to do is say, did something happen in April a few years ago that was a real crisis, and are you going through that again? Because people do. And then you can attack it directly and say, okay, we need some extra prayer here to help through this and kind of break this cycle. People live in these cycles, and they're bigger and bigger. Now, that's as we grow. But now what God wants us to do is not just think in years, but to think in hundreds of years and thousands of years. And we're going to. God is changing people over generations of time, and that's what history means. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.